so here's our teaching text. It's from Luke 10. You can follow along on the screen. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers, and they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. The priest, a, a, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he had come to the place and saw him, passed by on the other, on the other, on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. One of the first roles uh, that I got to play in my uh, very short theater career, um, in, in a production that was outside of school or college, it was in a professional theater, I thought it was such a, such a big deal, uh, was I played a valet in hell. My character worked in hell, um, and he showed people to where their rooms were, where they would be staying for the rest of eternity. Um, the play was called No Exit. Uh, you, may, you may have heard of it. It was an imagination by uh, a French existential philosopher, and I had never heard of him before I did this play, um, but Jean, Jean-Paul Sartre. And basically, three people are ushered into the room by myself, the valet in hell, um, into a, co- a comfortable Second Empire drawing room, and um, they, uh, they're, they're, never, they're, they're going to live together in this fairly comfortable room, and they're never going to be rid of each other, and they begin to see that that is actually, um, they're, they're going to become each other's tormentors, and that's kind of what you discover in the play. And the most famous line of this play, No Exit, this French existential philosopher uh, writing this play, uh, it comes near the end as the characters start to realize their expectations about what hell was were all wrong. Um, and, and here's the, the famous line, Garçon is one of the, the trapped three characters. He cries out, so this is hell. I'd have never believed it. You remember all we were told about the torture chambers, the fire and the brimstone, the burning marl, old wives' tales. There's no need for red-hot pokers. Hell is other people. And then you ride an F train at (laughs) rush hour on a Monday, and somebody's right here, and they haven't brushed, their Aquafresh is not working, and you're like, man, Sartre was right. The idea, though, is that the characters in the play and the reader, perhaps, also are, are being, they're, they're meant to be shocked, right? Uh, when you find out the whole play is sort of slowly revealed that they're in hell, and you're supposed to be shocked by the idea that it's a really comfortable room and that the actual tension is just brought um, by the relationships. In a sense, if the people could let themselves just be kind to one another, 
to one another for long enough that it wouldn't be that unpleasant, and yet they just can't. They, they keep trying, and they end up, the sounds they make, and, and they, they get on each other's nerves, and they just begin to realize, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm trapped with these people. And their, their picture of hell is scandalized because it was all wrong, and yet still it's this awful, torturous place, and maybe perhaps even, even worse than they thought. Now, perhaps bizarrely, but as I was reading the story of the Good Samaritan and meditating on it, that, that line, hell is other people, cropped into my, my memory. If you, if you look up Jean-Paul Sartre, that's the, 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 the line from the phrase, that, from the play that, that you, you will find. He was using to shock his hearers, and basically Jesus is trying to shock his hearers about what heaven is, about eternal life. They have one set of expectations about what it is and what it's supposed to be, and where Sartre says hell is other people, God, uh, Jesus is saying like, you know, a heaven is right relationship with God and, and other people. And it just, it just came into my mind. We know, we know this story, the Good Samaritan, so well that I wonder if we um, forget what it's about. Oh, the Good Samaritan, that means that you should help someone if you happen to come across them and they're in trouble. That's what the last Seinfeld was about. You remember? The very last Seinfeld, they're like, how do we end this series? And they all end up in jail because they're, they're, they're going to Paris and they're, their plane gets trapped in some Midwest town and they're standing there, these four jaded New Yorkers and this guy gets carjacked and they're sort of like watching and making fun of him and like calling him out about his weight and how like they're, they're videoing it and then this cop sees the whole thing and they get arrested for breaking the newly minted Good Samaritan law. Do you remember this? It has nothing to do with the sermon, but I want you to remember this. Go back and watch the end of the, the Seinfeld series. So they end up going to court and then like for the, 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 basically their, their trial is the whole series, how they've just been awful to everyone for the whole time. <laughs> Hell is other people. Okay. Um, so we, we think we know this story is about helping someone that's in need if you happen to come across them. But that actually, if, if that's the only meaning of this parable, then it's going to lose quite a bit of punch because the, the questions that Jesus gives this story in response to are some of the most profound questions of the human experience. And he gives this parable in response to two crucial questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And who is my neighbor? That's why Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Whatever else we may draw from it, that's what, that's what he's trying to do. Perhaps, interestingly, he doesn't tell the story in response to the question, what do I do if I see someone who's just been robbed on the side of the road? So Jesus, I think, he does share a small patch of intention here with Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, who, who, who starts trying to shock people by saying, you don't really understand what makes hell hell. And Jesus is saying, I'm not sure you really understand what makes heaven heaven. I'm not sure you're grasping what eternal life is. That's the question that launches the parable. I'm just going to read the top part again so that you have it fresh in your mind. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question that propels this story forward. What is written in the law? He replied, Jesus, classic answering the question with a question. Jesus was great at that. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Fantastic. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The questions in the parables have to be kept really close together so that we don't detach the story and just try to draw an abstract meaning of it. Although helping people that we meet on the side of the road would, you know, would be certainly a good thing, but it's not the ultimate good that this story, uh, story is pointing to. The, the man's question is, how 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? I want you to take that question and massage it in your own mouth for a moment. Think about it in your own mind. What must I do to inherit eternal life? If there's, there's perhaps not a more weightier question that we could ask, how do I have deep, profound meaning in this life and have it go on forever? What, what is he asking here? Right? Sometimes we translate that question really quickly from what must I do to inherit eternal life to what must I do to go to heaven? But maybe he was asking something else. Certainly there's a future orientation. The inheritance seems to indicate that there's a portion of it that's coming later that he doesn't have now. But when Jesus says you answered correctly, the man described things that happen immediately. So inheriting eternal life is not just something that's a future-oriented reality. There is some aspect of it that is true immediately. Perhaps the man is asking or we think he's asking, how do I end up in the right place? And yet Jesus says... You're correct in saying the life you're looking for is, let me say this really clearly, the life you're looking for is found in relationship with God and with other people in that order. Either in relationships that you already currently have going or one that you can begin even now. That that is what makes eternal life, eternal life. So what's Jesus saying? Not to be overly simple, I'm sure you already have put these things together. What's Jesus saying about eternal life, about this crucial question? He's saying that it is a quality of life. It is a quality of life that can begin at any point in our own life and will certainly continue into the future. It is not simply about something that begins down the road, but something that begins now and is fulfilled and brought to completion down the road. In fact, what makes heaven heaven, according to Jesus, is relationships. The fullness of knowing and being known by God and knowing and being known by other people in that love. So what is Jesus saying then essentially? In the narrative arc of the scriptures, this is important, he's hearkening back to the Genesis society in the garden where there was perfect relationship between God and perfect relationship with people, that the redemption that his kingdom is bringing into the world is a restoration of that society. Now, this is a a little bit sort of technical theology here. There are social and material realities that will certainly be changed in our existence once sin and corruption is removed. But the essence of eternal life is relationship that can begin now. That's when Jesus says, this is eternal life that you know the Father and the Son whom he has sent. Eternal life is this rich love shared between us and God and ourselves and other people. I know... I'm saying the same thing, but I'm going to keep massaging how I say it so that hopefully it will get from our minds into our heart. The nature and quality of eternal life is a healing of, the, of every relational level of our, of our existence with God and ourselves and with ourselves and other people. So we have things we're still hoping for, obviously, because if, if I'm saying essentially that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you have been brought into the kingdom by believing in the message of the gospel and been filled with the Holy Spirit of God, that you have eternal life, that you are a, sh- you are a shareholder in eternal life right now. But obviously there are still things we're desperately hoping for to change in our social and material realities of our world. We're longing for things to be different, for things to change. And actually this story is an example of how we can actually participate in that reality coming, coming into, to be present 
in our midst. So there are some realities we will not experience until sin and death are removed for good. But right now, we can know what to be looking for based on the nature of eternal life. Paul says this, to, to, to a city church, Corinth, in one of the most famous chapters that's read at, at, at almost all weddings, 1 Corinthians 13, at the end of this, at the end of uh, 1 Corinthians 13, he says this, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put, a, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. The story is the story of the Good Samaritan, (laughs) a man who helps someone who's been brutally attacked by robbers. But the question that sparks it is, what is eternal life? And Jesus' answer to it is so profound that we can't rush past it. He's saying, it is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. It is a relational healing at every area of our life. So it begins in this restored communion with God and then it bleeds out into every aspect of our relational lives. So even in this First Corinthians passage, right? When we think of heaven, when you think of heaven as a kid, when you think of eternal life as a kid, what's, what do you think about? mansions and streets of gold and what sports will be available there and like how high roller coasters could possibly go in a heaven environment, right? Our most childish vision of of eternal life in heaven is about us landing in a place of material comfort and entertainment, right? And yet God's saying, that's okay, let me draw you in. The thing that your, your soul is longing for because no matter what material thing you have, like your dream house, your dream car, your dream job, whatever it is, once you have it for five years, it totally changes. It totally less satisfies. So let me tell you, the, the weight of your soul is so profound that if you put it, uh, its deepest hopes on something other than this relational reality of connection to God and connection to people, you're going to break the thing that you put the weight of your soul on. It won't possibly be able to sustain it because what heaven is, is is intimate relational connection with the God who made you and that bleeding out into your social relationships with other people. God's vision of eternal life is joyous, full relational union with him. As the passage says, to know fully even as we are known. Right now, the, the King James Version says, we're looking through a glass darkly. We have hints, glimpses, pictures, a little light getting through. But what we're intended for is a profound relational embrace to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy hears this and he's stuck at the minimum base requirement level. He's like, okay, then who's my neighbor? That's the question. Like, what prayer do I have to say? How many times do I have to come per month? What's the tithing requirement? What do I need to do? Like, that's, we're still stuck in a, in a religious system where we're performing to get in. And so instead of saying, oh, the fullness of this love relationship is available to me now, he's like, now who exactly do I have to love? And so maybe we can criticize him, but that reality is in my heart as well. <laughs> I want to know the minimum requirement so that I can get in, please. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells him this story and has many layers, like all of his parables, but the the narrative is fairly basic. So I want to put it on the screen. Not going to read it again because we read it. You can be looking over it as I go through a couple of these things. I just want you to know a few narrative details that give context that help you understand what's going on in this story, right? So the first thing we have is a man's going from Jerusalem to Jericho and he was attacked by robbers. 
You need to know just a few things about the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, okay? One is it's a 4,000 foot drop in elevation from Jerusalem to Jericho, over 17 miles that wind through this barren mountain place. So think many places to be murdered. <laughs> have, you seen this, have you seen this morbid hashtag, get murdered? No. It is very dark. Someone takes a picture of like a sketchy alley, hashtag get murdered. This is a true internet phenomenon. Thank you, internet. Let's keep going, guys. Let's stay focused if you can. At certain points on this windy mountain road are 300 foot drops off a precipice with no shoulder. So you think like this is, this is a, 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 dang, a dangerous place. Last, last week I did a terrible thing. I wasn't here because I was torturing myself in the North Face Endurance Challenge, which was 13.1 miles in the woods, mostly uphill over rocks. And I wish someone would have robbed me so I could stop. And then some good Samaritan could drag me home. I literally was running and uh, between mile 10 and 11, I clipped this root and my calves and one of my hamstrings seized the exact same moment. So I'm just like a healthy, you know, middle-aged person with a little gray in his beard. And it's like, <laughs> and that there's a, you know, they, they take these race photos of you and then they send them to you so that you can literally pay $30 to see yourself suffering again and remember, oh, that, was, that, was, that felt awful. Um, so there's a picture of me like just walking with my head down and an elderly woman passing me. I'm like, yeah, let me get that, let me get that framed. That'll be fantastic. I love to exercise. It's a dangerous road. That's what I'm trying to say mostly. And I'm pretty out of shape. I can get seats on the train. I'm sorry. My wife's giving me the wrap it up symbol in her mind. No one was saved to travel this road alone. And there were many remote places where you were susceptible to being attacked. And so what you would expect to happen in this story happens. The man is brutally attacked. He's not just robbed. He's stripped naked. He's left for dead. And there's no hope for his survival unless someone comes along and rescues him. And then a bright moment in the story, a priest is coming by. This is someone who had given their life to spiritual service of God and people. This is someone who would be viewed, especially by the hearers, as this lawyer is trying to justify himself and, and, and understand the story of who his neighbor is. Certainly the priest who studied the, the Hebrew tradition and the law and knows all the instructions in, in the Torah for helping your neighbor and even helping your neighbor's animal if you find them in distress. Of course, when the priest comes by, he's going to know what to do. So if you're hearing the story, you're imagining our, our, our poor tr Jewish traveler who's fallen amongst the thieves is about to be helped and the priest comes and does nothing the word that's used to describe him avoiding is a word that's used only here in the new testament and it's basically like he went as opposite direction as he could possibly go he did everything he could to avoid the cost of this broken person entering into his life at all he completely avoided him the, the priest, the one who's meant to be the ray of hope in this story, totally fails at his responsibility. The same thing is true of the Levite who comes by. This, both of these men should have been good news for our wounded uh, Jewish traveler, and yet both of them clearly, deliberately avoid the injured man. And then 
comes the character the story hinges on, this Samaritan. Now, I know you've probably heard this if you've heard stories of Jesus and the woman at the well or any other interaction between Jewish people in the first century and the Samaritans, but there was massive tension between these two groups of people. It's, it's, we don't have enough time to unpack the layers of tension that would have been present, but there was racial tension. The, the Samaritans descended from Jewish people who had intermarried with their enemies in their mind, and so they, they, had, they thought of them as having polluted their bloodline, and so they wanted nothing to do. There was racial tension. There was also theological tension. There was arguments over how to practice their faith in Yahweh, where they were meant to worship. You remember Jesus when he's speaking to the woman at the well, she wants to get in a theological argument with him about where the temple is supposed to be. uh, One commentator put it this way, the Jewish people regarded the Samaritans as an apostate people who had sold their spiritual birthright. All, after all, the Samaritans had actively participated in the defilement of the land, they had polluted the bloodline, and they were guilty of idolatry. So the Jewish people really disliked, even hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans felt the exact same way. The Jewish people had destroyed their, their place, what they thought was the rightful tension, um, the rightful temple where they were meant to worship God. The bottom line was they should have absolutely hated each other. So I want you to realize what Jesus is doing, right? You probably already have. But remember the man who asked the question, who is my neighbor? What is he trying to decide? Who do I exactly have to love for this life to take hold of me, for me to inherit the eternal life that you're talking about? Exactly who do I have to love? And into the group of people that Jesus is saying you have to love, he has brought his enemy. Your neighbor also includes your enemy. Let's just sit with that for a moment. Even if he is your enemy by for really, really good, long-standing reasons. In the kingdom of God, your neighbor includes your enemy. And so we see this Samaritan shocking his hearers, scandalizing those who are listening to this parable by showing incredible love at great personal cost. And I just want to walk you through the phrases while they're on the screen of what he does. Of what he does. He saw him. He doesn't avoid him. He doesn't say, I I can't be bothered. This road is difficult and challenging enough. I have somewhere to be. I shouldn't even be. This is unsafe territory for me. He does the opposite of the religious elite. He, he, He actually sees him, right? That is such a gift that we can give to one another as human beings, not to just be passing in the midst of our own personal stories, but to stop and to give someone the gift of looking them in the eyes and hearing them and seeing them. He saw him. That's a gift we give to one another as human beings. He had compassion. He allowed what he saw to move him beyond just his, his, his mind. It sunk down into his heart and moved him to compassion. Right? One of the most beautiful pictures, I think, of, of the Jesus community in the New Testament is that they weep with those who weep and they rejoice with those who rejoice. It's the very opposite of selfishness. When you're in a small cage of selfishness, someone gives you great news and you're just like, eh, that should have been me. Or you're, you're, you're like, you pretend to be happy for them, but basically you're still just thinking about yourself when you can really rejoice with someone and they're good, right? It means you're moving out towards the other. And, and on, the, on, the, on the flip side, when someone shares their grief with you and you can actually enter into it empathetically and take their grief on and bear it with them, it's a beautiful thing to, to be moving towards the other in that way. He saw him, he had compassion, and then he acted on that compassion, even though there was great cost to himself. How, how do we know this? Well, he uses his oil and his wine. 4,000 foot drop in elevation, 17 miles of mountain hiking. He probably is not carrying surplus of supplies. 
So he brings his own well-being into question by using his resources to meet the needs of this man that he finds. He, he, he bandages his wounds. He puts oil and wine to take away the pain. He puts himself at risk. And then he goes on this dangerous road on foot with the man riding on his own donkey. He brings him to safety, right? I, I can imagine, right? I signed up for that race months ago. And I was like, I'm going to start eating healthy and running all the time, and I'm going to be in fantastic shape. And when none of that happened and I still did the race, <laughs> then it was like, you know, by mile like three, I'm like, this has to be over. I wonder if I could fake an injury and quit. So 17 miles with this guy on his donkey, and he's leading him down. This, I wonder how many times the thought crosses his mind, like, what am I doing? He follows through, right? We flash forward in the story, but in the actual event, how much time would it have taken? to carry him all the miles to the end of the road, to, to the end. So Jesus shows this Samaritan demonstrating extravagant love at his own personal cost to rescue his enemy's life. And then he asks his own question at the end. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So what is Jesus saying with this story as we move towards communion? He's saying, he's saying at least this. Your, your narrow minimum requirement mindset is missing something. Your narrow minimum require mindset is missing the extravagant heart of love that is in the midst of the kingdom of God, that is, is present in the gospel. You were... If you don't hear anything else, hear this. You were made for loving union with God. Such profound, deep intimacy that it's difficult to fathom or describe. You were made for such union with God and that union with God is meant to affect your relationships in such a profound way that you, the love you experience, the agape love of God begins to define your human relationships as well. And that's wonderful when we're talking about family and friends, but it's also meant to be bent all the way to the enemy. Now, we live in time that is rife with tension. We have a political enemies. We have military enemies. We have enemies at work. We have rivals in the city. We have, there's so many points of relational tension in our world. Do we really want to believe this? That God is saying your neighbor that you must love is also including your enemy. And we may not want to, if we're really honest, like our prejudices feel good. <laughs> and well-deserved and well-earned over time. We're not fools. We know how people really work. We know what those people are really like, whoever those people are as we define it. But I promise you this, even if you're convicted or pushed by Jesus saying, I want you to love your enemy, we have to be very glad that he treats us that way. That for God, his enemy, is, he's willing to do everything possible to bring us to himself to put aside anything that would be a barrier between us and embrace us at significant and utter cost to himself. Let me just give you the summary of this, this little parable from Romans 5. God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. 
At the heart of the kingdom of God, at the heart of the gospel message, is a man dying for his enemies. If we are going to be agents, participants in the kingdom of God, we must be those who pay a cost of demonstrating love to our enemies. Can we do that? Absolutely not. We really can't, not for long. We actually have to have the generating power of love from the Holy Spirit. I said before, the Christian life, you can't do it on natural resources. We have to have the supernatural resources of the love of God pouring through our hearts and lives by the Holy Spirit to see our enemies with compassion because we see how God has seen us in our very worst, deceptive, darkest moments. That's the reversal of this parable. (laughs) Is that Jesus kind of becomes both. He's the one who's been torn apart by this world and he's also the one who comes beside and at incredible cost rescues us. It becomes clear once you see the full revelation of the gospel story that Jesus is telling that Jesus has stumbled across, across us half dead. We are physically alive, but we are spiritually disconnected from God and so we are spiritually dead and he pays an extravagant cost for our healing and restoration. So that's the invitation a participation in that kind of love, both to receive it and then to turn around and give it. So as we move to the communion table, here's just simple simple implications for you to consider. The first is, and the rest probably hinge on this, is to realize how extravagantly you are loved. Whatever your sense of self-perception is, whatever wounds that have been inflicted on you or lies that have been sown into your heart and consciousness, Whatever way that you see yourself, I want you to know how God sees you. (laughs) Extravagantly loved, made in his image, someone that he delights in. Not because you're going to get it all together or you're going to keep all your promises, but just because you're his child, because he loves you, because he made you, because he delights in you in ways that you can't even fathom. He is willing to pay the full cost to bring you home, to heal you, to bring you back to life. Realize how extravagantly you were loved. And another one, an implication from this story, is that in the kingdom of God, there is no room for your prejudice. There just is no room for it. Now, your neighbor includes your enemy no matter how rightfully you think they are your enemy. So what do I mean? Well, I come with my prejudice. If there's no room for my prejudice, then I can't come in. No, just like every other manner of sin, we come in And we realize that God is transforming us into the image of Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit. So when I say there's no room for your prejudice, obviously you come to God as you are with all the ugliness and all the goodness. And he is remaking you. But you must know and accept that one of the realities he's going to be doing is making you learn to love your enemies. Even if you think they're enemies for good reasons. He's going to confront your racism and seek to remove it with love. He's going to confront your snobbery no matter how much it costs you to erect around you as a protection. He's going to confront many of our measurements for how we evaluate people and let them in based on our perception of their coolness or their likability. He's going to to be removing those and making us those who, who move out and embrace of the other. He's making us full, robust agents of his wildly accepting love. His love is wildly accepting and he's making us a a, a representative of that. And and you need to know, this this parable represents that to really demonstrate love, there's a profound cost. 
There's no room in the kingdom of God for our prejudice. But we are called to participate in healing. United to Jesus, we are called to pay the cost for the healing of our neighbors as he has done for us. Now, we can't obviously pay the ultimate cost that Christ has paid, but we can be representatives of that love in such a profound way that we are, we are facilitators of the healing of other people's lives, right? And this happens supernaturally. Sometimes it means you lay hands on someone who's sick and you pray for them and God does the work of healing them. Sometimes it means that you go to their house at an inconvenient hour and that you, you, you help them travel to a difficult place and you do like what would seem like ordinary acts of, of, of radical generosity to, to speak healing into someone's broken situation. So there's ordinary ways and supernatural ways if you want to think of it, even though in every one of them we, have to, we are required to depend on the Holy Spirit. There's a future identification that this parable points us to. Mother Teresa says, we don't help, we don't help the poor because they're, they're like Christ. We help the poor because they are Christ. As he said, you, we, you, you will find in the very least of these an identification with me. And when you serve this person, you give this person water or, or visit them or give them food, you're doing it to me. That we're participating in the healing that Jesus brings. And so we hear his invitation and know that it comes from a loving father who's literally redeemed us by his extravagant grace. Go and do likewise, Trinity Grace Park Slope. Go and do likewise. Be aware, pay attention, really see people. Recognize they have detailed, layered stories that they need to be recipients of, your, of grace and mercy that maybe one of the first touches of knowing God's love will come through your life in their, in their, in their life. That you have a unique opportunity to, in our world, rife with these types of tensions, to be someone who moves across to the other, who thinks differently than you and looks differently than you and, and, and embrace with the love of God and let those dividing walls of hostility fall down as the gospel promises that they're meant to. And go and do likewise. We pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for what Jesus has done. That he has paid the full price to rescue us, to heal us, to bring us back to life. I thank you that you offer and you also do fill us with your love by your Holy Spirit. May we operate in that type of love together. May we be those people who consider our family and friends, of course, but also those who are divided from us in, in all manner of, of, of particularities. We need your help. We need your supernatural love to do this. As we come to communion this morning, would you show us in each of our hearts the way we're meant to respond I pray in Christ's name, amen. I'm gonna give you just a few moments of silent reflection to ask in your own heart how God is calling you to respond. And then in just a moment, I'll come and invite us to the communion table and we'll, we'll, we'll worship.